you would, I invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 2. We'll start chapter 2 today, 1 through 6. Let's pray. Father, we are here this morning because we want to know Christ and because we do know Him and are in Him. And we are convinced that He is here to be found in Your Word, in the Word of the Apostle John, and that we find Him offered to us in the Gospel of Your Son, Jesus Christ the Righteous. We are aware that of ourselves, we are blind, we walk in darkness, but you have brought us into the light. And by your spirit, we ask that you grant that we may see yet more clearly and more brightly. And that we may enjoy greater and greater obedience and love and faith in the fellowship with your people and with your son and your Holy Spirit. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. If you're able, first John two, one through six, the apostle says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Amen. This is God's holy and inerrant word. You may be seated. Kelly's not here, so I get to pick on her. She said I could share this. Uh she has always struggled with uh, tests. She doesn't like tests, has test anxiety. And uh, they make her nervous, make her freeze up. And I, I have students in my, my classes like this too. They'll be, they'll be freaking out about a, a quiz and I'm going to fail. And of course they get like a 100%. Usually the ones who are nervous are the ones who try hard and, and usually succeed uh, like Kelly. Um, then there's those other kids who are like, you should probably worry a little bit more about this test. I've always liked tests personally. It's a chance to gauge yourself to find out, okay, what do I really know? And John, in scripture, gives us tests to help us determine what do I really know? Particularly, do I really know Christ. The three big tests, there are others, but the three big ones that we see in Scripture, um, and each of them is strong and present in this book, are faith, love, and obedience. 
faith, love, and obedience. Those are the tests. And this last one, obedience, is the one primarily that this passage focuses on today. As John does with his readers, I by and large assume that all in this room who have made a profession of faith do in fact know Jesus. And we see that's John's assumption as well. But like with students, each of us has a different reaction to this idea of being tested and the testing of the genuineness of our faith. And at the end of the day, I think it should be an encouragement to us that we do in fact know Christ. There is an element of warning in this passage as well, to be sure, in John's instructions. If we do not pass the test, we should be warned. We may not know Christ at all, even if we think we do. And also, any test has the advantage of revealing to us our weaknesses, and it's no different here. There are areas we need to work on, but ultimately we should be encouraged by John's ultimate purpose in this book, that you may know that you have eternal life. I want to encourage you through this test that you do have eternal life, that you do know Jesus Christ. So chapter 2 begins with another purpose statement. And his purpose is that you may not sin. In chapter 1, he says he's writing that they may have fellowship with the Father and the Son and with the saints. And he also says another purpose is he's writing so that our joy might be complete. And now he says says in in, chapter 2, Verse 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So that you may not sin. That's why he's writing. And in these things, that is in the content of his message, there is a purpose that they may not sin. Broadly, the whole book serves this purpose, but more narrowly, the preceding context, fellowship with God, God is light, confession of sin, forgiveness, cleansing through the blood of Jesus, all of this behind it, behind his communication of it, is this very simple desire, I do not want you to sin. I want you to be free of sin. I want you to be guarded from future sins. I want you to stop the sins that you're committing now. And if we're parents, who among us doesn't share this paternal or, or maternal longing that our children would not sin? My little children, that is a, a paternal expression of affection for them. And it's this beautiful mixture and this, this paternal expression of authority I do not want you to sin and affection. I do not want you to sin. I don't know about you, but it's very often the case with me that the sins that are in my children that I react the strongest to are the ones that I see in myself. And on one level, it seems hypocritical. Like, how can I be mad at you for doing something you got from me? But on another level, it evokes emotion in us because... I don't want you to get burned on the thing I got burned on. It hurt me. It's going to hurt you too. 
This is the paternal expression of John. I don't want you to sin. And these things he writes to call us away from sin. But he also, he writes them because the things he writes are the means of freeing us from sin. John was fighting a battle similar to one we fight that every generation fights is that a, a, a lax view of sin sin what is sin is sin really that big a deal do we really have to talk about sin can't we just talk about light that's what he would have the, the gnostics would say let's we're in the let's pursue light illumination or for us maybe can't we just talk about love why do we have to talk about sin the churches always have to fight this this error of antinomianism. Just one example for us in our day, the big tussle, or one of them has been around the question of identity, of, of selfhood. And this is because, and... and uh, Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Modern uh, Triumph of the Modern Self, has been helpful for me on this, but because the issue of identity or selfhood has become a matter of uh, being grounded in on the inside, on our feelings, rather than on external realities. The way I feel is who I am. So the obvious example in our day is that of sexuality. I was made this way. I was born this way. This is just who I am. So uh, being homosexual has been compared uh, to being a, a paraplegic, and even in Christian circles, even in Reformed conservative circles. Yes, it's a defect as a result of the fall, but it's not a sin issue. When Scripture is quite plain that even the desire itself is a sin, so yes, a person may wrestle with, with, with homosexuality um, for various reasons, but to call oneself, to identify oneself as a gay Christian, for example, is, is akin to calling oneself uh, an adulterous Christian. Why, why are we identifying that way? Or a gluttonous Christian. What, or, or to form a community around the LGBTQ community. What, this is identifying with our sin. And we see the danger in this when John says, I am writing to you that you may not sin. We have this idea that, that sin is somehow just a, a degree of it is okay. But he says, I don't want you to sin. And we need to be careful how we talk about sin. Now, we don't want to become hypocritical. We need to speak out against things like, like the, the tides in our culture about sexuality and identity, normalizing these things, uh, and especially in the church. But we should also not forget that each of us harbors these attitudes in our own hearts as well. I was talking to with one of the visitors from New Zealand last week about uh, Carl Truman's book, and I was mentioning that it was nice to see the, the cultural history of why we are the way we are, but it's also exposed in me the way I think about selfhood and identity.
Because for me, at least just as an example, it's easy to say, this is just how God made me. I've always been a timid person, a fearful person, and I'd rather just be a recluse. My first career choice in middle school was to be a shepherd in the mountains, a hermit by myself. And then in high school, it was to be a woodworker in a shop by myself. That's my nature, and it's tempting to say, I'm not going to engage because I'm fearful, and that's just how I am. That's just how God made me. We have these sins in each of our own hearts. My point in this excursus is to just simply say that, that we all harbor sin in our hearts and justify it in a number of ways. Many of the sins we might struggle with are the quote-unquote acceptable ones, But John says, there are no acceptable sins. I do not want you to sin. It's evil and it's bad for you to sin. And I write these things about God and his truth so that you might not sin. And we should be challenged by this purpose. The sins we are harboring in our heart and that we're saying, no, I don't want this to to go away. I want this sin. It's just a part of who I am. More than that, though, we should be encouraged as well as challenged in John, by John's purpose that there really is power to be had in his message, in the gospel, to free us from sin. We have a kind of optimism that we really can push back against our sin and make some ground. He says, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. Of course, we've already seen in this book at several points um, that perfection is not possible. Perfectionism is not something John would want us to teach. He said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And John is a, a realist. He recognizes even as Christians, we will continue to fight sin. So the, the, the next point here is, is that when you do sin, who is on your side? Who's on your side when you do sin? He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So as a believer, if you do sin, what are you going to do about it? In other words, what is the hope that the Christian possesses in light of persisting sin in our lives? And we can't self-justify. That won't do any good. We can't minimize the effects of sin on our relationship with God, as that would be dishonest. And John has closed that door on us already. And we can't just try harder to be better Christians as though our fellowship with God was dependent on on just trying our best or God knowing our heart, which is a horrifying idea and, and a terrible thing to rely on. But ask a child with any Sunday school experience, what are we supposed to do with our sins? They'll say, Jesus died for our sins. And yet in our fallen natures, we think we can, as Michael's been helpful to point out in Sunday school about Abraham, we can try to help God. We try to help God. John points out to us that the only means of purification and restoration is Jesus Christ the righteous. 
And he assigns Jesus here two offices, uh, really three. Um, he's, he says the advocate, the defense lawyer. He is the propitiation. And I say there's three offices because to be propitiation, he must be both priest and lamb. He is both the priest and the offer, offering. He's the offerer and the offering. So Jesus is advocate, he's priest, and he's lamb. And these are offices that he exercises, John says, for us. He says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And he is the propitiation for our sins. So what do we do? What's our hope as Christians who are not supposed to sin, but we did sin again? We burst out in anger again. We feared to speak the gospel again. We, we clicked again. We, we, we pouted in self-pity again. We gossiped again. We gorged again. We, we despised our neighbor who had cooler toys Again, what are we supposed to do with that? It can be frustrating to deal with our sin. John says we go to Jesus. We trust Jesus. He says we have an advocate with the Father. This word advocate, parakletos in the Greek, um, is someone who comes alongside, a, a helper, an intercessor. Jesus himself calls himself a parakletos, a, an advocate in John 14, he said, I'll send to you another helper. So he's the first helper. The Holy Spirit is the second helper. And the Spirit comes and he's with them. He's a helper. He, he guides them. He leads them in, in spreading the gospel, as we saw in Acts throughout the Mediterranean world. Um, one dictionary defines parakletos as helper and then translates uh, 1 John 2.1 as we have a helper with the Father. Which to me is just somehow lacking. We have a helper with the Father. There must be more than that, I think. Another dictionary says uh, that defines it as one who pleads another's cause before a judge, a pleader, a counsel for defense, a legal assistant, an advocate or intercessor. So it's actually a legal term. I think this definition is more suitable or more robust than just helper for this context. And so he's saying if you you do sin, that's a breach with God, who is the judge of the universe. In legal terms, it's an infraction of the law worthy of punishment and restitution. You've committed a criminal act, and God, the just judge, will execute his sentence on every last sin. And John doesn't say, I don't want you to sin, but if you do, as long as you do your best, Jesus will help you out. God will give you the benefit of the doubt. He says, no, I don't, I, I, I don't want you to sin, but if you do, you have a, a defense lawyer, an advocate, one who is there before the judgment of seed, seed of God pleading your case. And notice what kind of advocate John says that he is, that Jesus is. He calls him Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Uh, righteous may not be the first thing that comes to mind when, when the word lawyer comes to mind. But Jesus is the righteous advocate. 
In God's courtroom, Satan stands as the accuser, the prosecutor. And Jesus stands as the advocate before God's judgment seat. And he says he's our righteous advocate, our righteous intercessor. Uh, In our own courts, courts of men, judges have to to decide whether something an attorney proposes is inside or outside the law, whether it's constitutional or not, whether it's in order or out of order, whether it's just or unjust. But Jesus, being perfectly righteous and just, every plea he makes is lawful and just within the bounds of the law. Not 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 just that, but his righteousness is actually the basis of his pleas. He doesn't just stand before the judgment seat and say, "Look, look at him, the poor soul. He did the best he could. Let's just cut him a little slack." No, he says, as each and every sin is tried, he says, "My righteousness will stand in for him this time." I will be righteous on his behalf. And he can say that because he is also, John says, a propitiation for our sins. I'm grateful that the ESV chose to use the word propitiation. Not all do, based on on arguments in the past. Um, They use the word propitiation, which means to satisfy or to assuage God's wrath. I think the Amplified Bible is a helpful tool sometimes. It has a helpful definition of propitiation as the atoning sacrifice that holds back the wrath of God that would otherwise be directed at us because of our sinful nature, our worldliness, our lifestyle. In short, God is angry with sinners. Not just with sin, but with sinners. And His anger, His wrath is just. And the reason Jesus can stand before the just judge and plead His righteousness on our behalf is that Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God. Some object that that this idea of satisfying God's wrath makes Christianity almost pagan in a sense that are we really saying we have to appease this angry deity with the blood sacrifice Um, and some translations reflect this saying that he's the expiation for our sins or something similar and expiation just means the removal of sin which is important as part of our Salvation, the removal of sin, the idea of, of placing the hand on the goat, placing the sins on the goat and sending him off into the wilderness reflects this idea of expiation. The removal of sins is important, but it's an insufficient term here. It's, we need more than just expiation. We need somebody to pay the blood price for our sin and assuage the wrath of God that is justly on us. So the difference between expiation and propitiation in this context is the difference between reserved wrath and spent wrath. It's already been spent on Jesus. There's nothing left to spend on us. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath dry. If he didn't, there would still be wrath to be poured out. That's the difference between propitiation and expiation here. 
that it was already poured out all of God's wrath for our sins on Jesus Christ. It was already spent on him. And this is why Jesus, the righteous, can plead his righteousness on our behalf, because he is our propitiation. He bore the penalty for each of our unrighteous deeds already. And Calvin says here really beautifully, the intercession of Christ is a continual application of his death for our salvation. The intercession of Christ is a continual application of his death for our salvation. So every time we sin, he pleads his death on our behalf. If you do sin, you have an atoning sacrifice that Jesus Christ, the righteous, continually pleads on your behalf. Do not sin, but if you do, Jesus is the priest and lamb, the lawyer, priest and lamb for you. Then John says that he's propitiation not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, what could he mean by this, that Jesus is propitious for the sins of the whole world? Does he mean, if he means for the sins of every individual in the whole world, then there's no need for this letter. Or John's denunciation of false teachers who, who went out from us because they were not of us. There would be no need for him to contrast light and darkness, or, or later to speak of Cain, who is the son of the devil, and of us who are, who are of Christ. None of this would have any meaning at all if, if Jesus were effectively propitious for every individual in the whole world. Likewise, if he means that Jesus is a provisional propitiation, that means he covered everybody as long as they believe, but everybody, then that's only a hypothetical propitiation and not an effective one. And it's not an actual propitiation for the whole world. So I think John's emphasis is actually not on the whole world, but on, on Christ. He is the propitiation for the whole world. John is narrowing the channel through which sinful men may enjoy fellowship with God to one person, one historical act. Jesus and his atoning sacrifice. Everyone, the world over, whoever would come to the Father must come through him, through the propitiation. Everyone who would enjoy fellowship with God must lay aside his own claims of righteousness or higher knowledge or or whatever it may be and must trust in the propitious sacrifice of Jesus. From every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, the whole world over, Jesus is the way to the Father. John says, I write to you so that you do not sin, but if you do, you have an advocate, you have a propitiation, and he is the propitiation, the only one. And so the answer to the question, who do you have on your side when you sin? Who's in your corner John says it's Jesus Christ, the righteous. Which then leads us to the question and the all important question. Do you have Jesus in your corner? Do you know Christ? Do you know that you have Jesus on your side? 
because it is an important question, but also because John believes that the answer will be yes. That's why he pushes on us to ask the hard questions, to test ourselves, because he wants to confirm in us our faith, if we have faith. Just read verses 3 through 4 again. And by this, uh, 3 through 6, excuse me, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So on one level, the the test, sort of a crass term, but roughly the test, is very simple. Do Do you obey the commandments of Jesus? If you do, then you know... Him, Jesus, Jesus says something very similar in John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John says similarly at the very end of Revelation in chapter 22. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter by the city, the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I believe what John is getting at here is, I I don't want you to sin, but if you do, praise God, you have an advocate, you have a propitiation, Jesus Christ the righteous. But can you really say that you know Jesus? If you, if you walk up and down and all across his sacrifice with muddy feet every day. If your life is marked by the very sin that you say he saved you from. If, if you walk in that sin and identify with that sin and persist in your rebellion, can you really say, I know him? Rather, the evidence, the sign, the the test of of profession of knowledge of Jesus, he summarizes in 5 and 6, and he says, By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In other words, sanctification is inevitable if we're justified. And to know Christ is more than just to know about Christ or even to to know him like we would know a person. Do you know so and so? Oh yes, I know him very well. To know Christ is deeper than that. Notice the synonyms here in this passage. In in verse 3, he he says, know him. 
And then in verse 4, the, the truth is not in him is opposite from I know him. So in some sense, to know Christ is to have the truth abiding in us. And in verse 5, the love of God is perfected in us. Which may mean our love for God or, or, or His love for us. Our love for God perfected, filled up, completed. Or God's love for us perfected, uh, finds a fullness of, of expression. Uh, either way, it's obvious knowing Christ clearly goes well beyond familiarity or acquaintance or intellectual understanding. But knowing Christ is a divine love impacting us, changing the way we act and the way we think. And then in verse 5, another synonym to, to knowing Him. By this we know we are in Him, He says now. And then in verse 6, He says, whoever says He abides in Him. So I've mentioned to several of you, one, one of the reasons I enjoy First John is is I'm familiar with Paul and the things Paul says. And John says the same things Paul says, but he says them from a different angle or with different language. He's All he's talking about here is union with Christ. That's what it means to know Christ, to abide in Christ, is to be in Christ, to be united to Him. We are united to Him through faith. Faith is the instrument by which we are grafted into the vine and through which inevitable fruit will be produced. So John's summary here is the most most helpful and succinct. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Not perfectly, but, but genuinely, as ones who know, who abide in, who walk with Christ the righteous, our advocate, our propitiation. So this, this obedience to Christ is one of the tests in Scripture of a genuine profession. I know Jesus. Do you obey Jesus' commandments? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. And like any good test, this does expose our weakness. Who among us can say without exception, yes, I do. I've kept all his commandments from my youth. Some of us, depending on our personalities and natures, are are going to be very hard on ourselves in this test. Well, I I don't know if I do. I don't. do, Do I? Do I obey enough? To these people, I always say, take stock of your sanctification over the long haul. Maybe this week hasn't been great. Maybe the last couple months you've been struggling with something. Performance uh, may not be stellar recently. But on the whole, taking a look back, 5, 10, 20 years, can you honestly say, I haven't grown at all. I haven't grown in sanctification in the least. And if you have, praise the Lord, because good fruit may come from one place and one place only, the living vine. Others may indeed need to be warned. Perhaps you are walking in sin. 
contrary to your profession, you're given over to your sin. And you prefer it that way. You'd rather not give it up. And if this is the case, then I want to call you to repent and to turn from your sin. And to believe in Jesus. Because He will be a far better Savior to you than you will be. His justification provided by His propitious death on the cross will be far more effective than your own self-justification. His intercession on your behalf will be heard by the judge while your excuses will not. And it's a wonderful thing to be freed from the guilt and the bonds of living in sin and to know Jesus Christ the righteous. And for most in this room, I expect you recognize your sinfulness. You stand comforted by the work of Christ on your behalf and you see His transforming power in your life. Probably, if you're like me, not to the degree that you want, but you see it. And if that's the case, then rejoice. For you know, you can know that you have eternal life because you know, you know Christ. Praise God. Amen.